Well, we're going to continue in our, our walk through this study on um, Ezra and Nehemiah. And again, we've been talking about it being faith in a new world. And, and one of the reasons for this is so that, so that you know, we see how uh, you know, these people you know, thousands of years ago um, you know, were led back to, to kind of restore a place that, that in some ways was going to be very familiar, but in some ways was going to be very different. And hopefully some of the things that, that, we've, that we've gained from this study so far is this, this theme of being faithful in any situation. To be faithful in any situation Remember, it's been a remarkable about 80 years or so, 90 years for the, the Jewish people. You know, they went from being defeated, taken into exile, living in a kind of foreign land for about, about 70 years. And even in that time, the people that originally conquered them were themselves conquered. And, and now the, the Persians were, were in power. They were able to return, at least some of them were able to return. And they, they see some initial kind of victory and in getting the, the sacrifice and the worship started again and uh, building the temple uh, foundation and then they're opposed. And it's just in every situation, whether they feel like you know, they've, they've been defeated or whether they feel like things are moving in the right direction, the theme that's always here is to be faithful. To be faithful to the covenant, to be faithful to who God is. And what this helps us see is we, we, we see that, that the same faith, the same faithfulness looks very different in different situations. And I think that's really important when we think about faith in a new world. Because a lot of times we want um, we want what we consider faithfulness to look exactly like it did 50 years ago or 60 years ago or for some of you who aren't quite that old, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. We're always looking at, that we gotta make things look the same. And what we're, what we're gonna find out is that you know, for the first you know, 20 years or so that they're back, there's, there's no temple. And even when the temple is rebuilt, it's not going to look the same. It's going to be different. That whole area, that city, it's, it's different. But they're called to be faithful in that situation, even if it doesn't look or feel exactly the same way. Last week I ended with this thought and, and I hope it's something that, that, that you know, resonated with you and that you thought about that, that what it seems to be happening in this situation according to God's plan when you know, they wait 18 years from the time of the foundation to the time when they start the next phase of building. And that is that God is not just waiting for the right moment. He's waiting for the right people. He's not simply just waiting for that right moment in time to say, okay, gonna execute my plan. He's waiting for the right people. And this is important because, you know, one of the things that I, 
I try to communicate when I teach uh, the, the Bible and things is that when, when we look at the Bible, we tend to gravitate towards supernatural things, miracles, and we think God working is when God does some kind of miracle, when he parts a sea or a river, when, when somebody is, goes from being blind to being able to see or having leprosy and not having leprosy, having a demon, no demon. We, we tend to think that, that that's how God works. And if God isn't doing something like that, he's not working. And that's really the wrong way to think about things. And so one of the things that I've tried to do, and I use different examples to help people understand this, is that, is that when God works that way, that's the exception. It's not the normal way God works. What we see in scripture is that the normal way that God works, the typical way that God works is he works through his people. He works through his people. It's not some supernatural, you know, out of the ordinary kind of thing. He works through his people. And so if God is waiting for the right moment and he's waiting for the right people, who are those right people going to be? Well, those are gonna be the people who are faithful in every situation. Now, we don't know for sure that we could be faithful in every situation because, you know, we haven't encountered every situation. But I can tell you this, if we can be faithful when we're, when we're watching our city be destroyed, if we can be faithful when we've been taken into exile, if we can be faithful when we're, when we're in this other culture and we're, and we're raising our families in another culture that seems so attractive, so much more attractive than, than what, what we had and what we have, if we can be faithful when we, when we come back and, and start, you know, work, you know, and start getting to work and then start being opposed by people around us, when we can be faithful in that, even though we can't say for sure that we can be faithful in every situation. We've been faithful in a lot of the really tough ones. We've been faithful in perhaps some of the most difficult ones that we would ever face. And so our, our job, if we were to simplify it, is to be faithful in every situation. When you don't know what to do, be faithful. Be faithful to God, be faithful to his word, be faithful to the covenant. Those are the people God's waiting for. And I'm not gonna unpack this here, I just want you to kind of have this spinning in your head as, 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 you know, as we go through today's sermon and really not just through today's sermon, you know, in the weeks and months ahead because the Jewish people back, you know, 2,500 years ago, they knew what they were building and, and they had some idea, they had plans. They could go back and look at the, the law of Moses and, and, and see like what the building was supposed to look like. And even though it wasn't gonna look exactly like Solomon's temple, they had some general idea. But the question I want kind of rolling around in our heads is, what is God building here? 
What is he building at this place, at this time? If he's been waiting for the moment for the faithful, what does he want the faithful to do? Those of you who are you know, here this morning, you, know, you can, I think we still print on the back, you know, Romans 12, and it talks about what a healthy church is. Don't know all the details about what God is building here, but I am confident that he wants us to be a healthy church. I'm confident that all of those attributes that we went through you know, a couple years ago, that that hasn't changed. That I'm, he wants us to be a community of disciples. He wants us to be those who are not just devoted to God's word and studying God's word, but also living that word out in community. I know that. And so it might not look like the Wiley Baptist Church of five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It may not look like any other church in Honolulu, but I know that's the design that we have in scripture. And have that buzzing around in your head. And just know this, that, that, if, that if you're being faithful, God wants to use you in the work that he's doing here. I've been talking about um, this in um, Sunday school, I mentioned it, I think I might have mentioned it here, that I've been watching this series. I had actually watched some of it before, kind of re-watching part, and then there's some new episodes. And it's on the um, foods that build America. And you know, one of the episodes is on kind of the candy wars. And um, you know, there was the, you know, there's different ones that we recognize like Hershey, you know, Milton Hershey, who um, you know, started the Hershey Company. But then there was like the major competitor that came along in the kind of the, the chocolate wars and, and they developed a couple of you know, candy bars that we still see today. One was the Milky Way and the other one was Three Musketeers. Um, I will tell you, we've done a non-scientific study to say at least in our staff, this is the least favorite candy bar. Because if you get one of those mixed bags that has like you know, eight different kinds of candy bars, this one's always left. Um, if we get leftover candy from our trunk or treat, uh, the rest of it disappears, Three Musketeers, entire bags are left. I didn't know Three Musketeers was actually supposed to be three different candy bars in one. It's kind of a Neapolitan thing. I didn't really know the Milky Way was supposed to be the, like the candy bar of a malt. Now, some of you who grew up on the mainland, you know what malts are. Some of you are a little older, malts were like king for a while. I kind of grew up at the time when malts were kind of going away and, and shakes were taking over. But apparently you could get a candy bar that tasted like a malt. It was very popular. It became more popular than any of the, of the Hershey bars for a while. But in the development of these candy bars, they, were, they came from the Mars Company, 
the Mars company was the major competitor to the, to the Hershey company. And, and you had Frank Mars, who was the dad, and he had started the business. And then he had his son, Forrest Mars. And um, somehow they had not, like, I think um, Frank had, Mars had gotten divorced, so he didn't really raise Forrest Mars. He didn't really run into him until he was an adult, and Forrest Mars had actually gotten arrested, so Frank came to bail him out. But they become partners, they work together. But one of the sources of like friction in their company, one of the problems, is that, is that Forrest Mars always wanted credit. Like he's the one who invented the Milky Way. He invented the Three Musketeers. And his, you know, his dad didn't want to give him the credit. And so they would, they would go back and forth over, you know, who was really the one who, you know, created this thing that helped them make, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, you, you might go like, if, if you and I came up with an idea and we're business people and we're making millions and millions and millions of dollars, do we care who gets credit? Maybe not. And we might look at them and go, can't you just be happy? You have a successful business, you know? Can't you just be happy? Well, it eventually led, this kind of friction led to them, you know, falling apart. And we know kind of what's at the heart of that. It's this, this pride, this selfishness, this wanting to be recognized for our genius. And if we're honest, that's not just a problem Frank and Forrest Mars had. A lot of people have this problem. We want to take credit for work that God is doing. And a lot of people who want to take credit for work God's doing is, is because they either don't believe in God or they don't really believe God's in control of all things. So they, 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 want, us, they, want, it to, they want the eyes to be on them. They want people to look at you know, what they're accomplishing. And by the way, there's nothing wrong if someone thanks you for something. There was this kind of, I think it died out relatively soon, but you know, somewhere around the early 90s, there was this movement among Christians to, to not take... Um, thanks for anything. So if you thank them, if you said, you know, hey, thank you for leading worship, the person would automatically say, it wasn't me, it was God. God, God deserves all the thanks. And you, you know, if, if they uh, gave you, uh, you know, went to McDonald's and got you a hamburger, they said, hey, thanks for the hamburger, it wasn't me, it was God. That was kind of the thing to say. Um, I think they kind of got that wrong. It's okay to be thanked. It's okay to accept thanks. The problem is when we start to take credit for the work that God is doing. And it's hard because the better you are, the more successful you are, the more God uses you, the easier it is to think that it's me and not God. And this is a 
you know, especially true of people who, who don't really believe God is in control of all things. Well, this again is, we expect this from people outside the church. We expect this from people who, who aren't faithful, but we find that it's also true of those of us inside the church. And I think it's because we have this problem. And I remember thinking about this, and I would, I would study scripture, read scripture, try to understand you know, what everything the Bible is, was trying to talk about in terms of you know, how things happen. And I came up with this, and maybe it helps you, maybe it doesn't. Um, but I came up with this like three ways of understanding things. And one of them was what something looks like. And then the second one was what something feels like. And the third one was what something actually is. And I want that to kind of be spinning in our heads to think about. There's too many things spinning in our heads. We might not be able to focus on the text. But just two things spinning in your heads. That, that what something looks like when we look at this story of Ezra, what does it look like? Well, it looks like, if you didn't have the story and you were just there, it looks like, like this, this king, just for whatever reasons, he might have had political reasons, he might have had uh, personal reasons, but, but he just said, you know what? I want to help these Jewish people. And so I'm going to send them back and I'm going to, I'm going to let them build their temple. And what this looked like to the Jewish people is, you know, king helped us, we're now traveling, we're, we're working. That's what it looks like. What it felt like could be a couple things. For King Cyrus, what it might have felt like was, you know what, I'm a pretty good dude. I, I'm, I'm king, I'm emperor, you know, I got this empire and all this thing going on, but, but I also care about people. So it might have felt like that to him. To the Jewish people, it might have felt different. It might have felt like, you know, we're doing God's work. We're, we're fulfilling his, the prophecies. We're going back and, and restoring the city Restoring the temple. And that might have been what it felt like. But what it actually is, is God at work. Can't forget that. We can't get distracted by what something looks like and what something feels like to the point that we forget that what it actually is, is God at work. And so we come to this story, and, and Darius um, had received this report from one of his governors, Tatanai, and there was other governors that kind of um, you know, put their names to it. And they told him about this report, about the, the, these people like are rebuilding this temple, and you know, that could be a problem. And so they, they're waiting for Darius' response. Now I want you to understand, Darius is, 
It's this, again, this isn't happening in a matter of you know, a day or two. This is over a period of, of weeks, probably months, maybe longer. Because they have to have time to, to have the, the message sent. Then we know that, that Darius then has the archives searched to see if the story is, is, you know, holds up. And then there has to be a response. Plus, this isn't the only thing you know, Darius does in a day. So we know it takes time. And think about that. Think about that, that, that these people have already waited 18 years from the foundation to the restart. And now they've restarted and they're continuing to build, but they're waiting. And they're waiting months. What it feels like Oh, it's like tension drama. But what it is, is God at work. It says in verse one of chapter six in Ezra, it says, then Darius the king made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbaktana, the citadel that is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits. With three layers of great stones and one layer of timber, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and let also the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. So Darius does what the letter says. He goes and has somebody looked through the, the historical records and they find Cyrus's decree. And so you, you, you look at this and you go, okay, story finished, right? Well, not exactly. Darius has some choices here. He has some things that he, that he could do and, and he could, he could go along with Cyrus. He could modify it. He could say, no, it's a really bad idea. Maybe it made sense to Cyrus back then. It doesn't make sense to me. But what we see here is we see that, that God is working. He's working through the Jewish leaders. He's working through the faithful leaders who knew who they were in the world. They didn't just know who they were in relationship to God. Oh, in relationship to God, they were his covenant people. But they also knew who they were in the world. There was certainly a risk involved. But they knew in the world, they were a conquered people. They knew in the world that they were living at the good pleasure of the king. 
And even though they probably had no idea about all the factors that Darius would have to consider, they understood that Cyrus had granted them certain rights. Cyrus had, had, had said, you know, I, I favor these people. This is what I'm going to do for them. And because the leaders knew that, they were, they were able to like, make decisions and to, to be faithful and, and go to work because they understood the situation they were in. I think that's one of the struggles that, that we have in the church today. I think one of the struggles, especially among you know, those of us who you know, are, are among American evangelicals, you know, one of the struggles is, is that we think we're the majority. We think we're, we're the norm. When in fact, if you take a global perspective on Christianity, American Christians are the minority. And it's not close. We sometimes can just get kind of caught up in, in not paying attention to what's going on in our culture. Now, I'm going to tell you, our, our church has, is trying. We're, we're making efforts, and we're not the only ones. There are other churches doing this. That, the Worldview Summit um, that we just had with, uh, I mean, the Worldview Conference, we had a Summit Ministries, that one conference had, I think, um, over two to 3,000 people that were registered for it. We're not the only people who are trying to help, you know, un- help ourselves understand and help others in our church understand what's going on in our culture. We're not the only ones, but we are doing it. It's a good start. We need more because it's not enough just to know God's word. God's word is, we need to know God's word. Make no mistake. But if we're going to live God's word, proclaim God's word into the culture in which we live, we need to understand the culture. And again, some people go like, no, we just need to know truth and, and culture will, will, you know, they, you know, they, they will adapt and, and, you know, then, you know, truth will go out and, you know, truth will be, you know, will win the day. And, you know, all of those things are true. But there's a reason, again, that we are not, as Christians, continuing to speak God's word in ancient Greek. Why not? Why did we change languages? If God felt that Hebrew and and Koine Greek were the best languages to communicate who he was and his plan for the world, why did we change that language? It's ridiculous. Why would we do it? That's stupid. And yet we did. Why? If you decided to go out and share the gospel and you're doing it in, you know, first century Greek, 
How many first century Greek people out there are going to be able to respond? What are most people going to do? They're going to be like, oh, that's, that's a different language. But the gospel's not going to be proclaimed, even though what you're saying is true. We need to understand the culture that we're trying to communicate to. We need to understand that we live in a culture that it's, it's just, to me, it's like picking up steam because it's being motivated by this huge push, and I don't have time to go into all of it, that just keeps saying newer, 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 newer. Newer is better. Newer is always better. Younger is better. So keep getting newer, keep getting younger, and it just keeps getting faster and faster and faster as we push on to new, newer and newer and newer things. It doesn't mean newer and younger are bad. In fact, there's a lot of really good things that come from new and young. But there's an assumption in our culture that if it's old, it must not be that good. Newer is better. And we struggle because we don't want to know where we are in the world. We don't want to know what, if we think about the Christian church today, if we just think about Wiley Baptist Church, what is our place in the world? Do people even know we exist? What do they think of us? Who are the Dariuses in our world? And we struggle with this because, you know what? To learn about these things takes time. And sometimes we just think like, we don't have the time. I don't have the patience. I'll let somebody else worry about that. And it's difficult. And then sometimes like, we wanna try. We, we, we want to try to understand. But of course, in our world today, there's so many sources of information, it's difficult to know even what sources of information to trust. Let me just tell you as Christians, it's not just so that we can proclaim the gospel to the world. That's important. But the other side of this Ezra-Nehemiah story, which we're going to get to in the, in the weeks to come, is that we need to know what's influencing us we talk about culture and generations as though they're all pockets and they exist somewhat independently. It's just not true. Everything that's affecting millennials is affecting Gen Xers. And it's affecting the baby boomers. And it's affecting, you know, what's called the greatest generation. You've all been affected by it. And as Christians, if we say Jesus is Lord, he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, he is the Lord of my life, he is the one that I want to follow, he is the authority of my life, his word is how I want to live my life. You may be doing that on the surface while all along you're being influenced by these things you don't understand. That's shaping what you actually believe, and you don't even know it. If Jesus is one of many lords to you, 
You don't need to worry about this. But if he is the Lord, and you are unwittingly serving other masters because you don't even know that they're controlling you, that's no place for a Christian to be. We need to know. See, it's bad enough to be controlled by influences. It's worse not to know. In fact, here's what I think is happening to, it's happened to all of us, and I think it's increasingly happening in this world, is that we're being deceived, we're being deceived into believing that we're free by the people who are enslaving us. You're like, oh, I didn't expect to hear that this morning. Aren't we supposed to be uh, thinking happy thoughts? Well, the happy thought is this. You don't have to be enslaved. You don't have to be ignorant of the forces that are, that are controlling you. You, you. you can know. You have opportunity of resources. And again, our church has been just continuing to like work through this and push through this because we know how important it is. But there's way more resources than what we have. Let's look at the next part of this where now Darius is responding. He's read Cyrus's decree. Now he's responding. He says this, Now therefore Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Verse 7 says, Let the work on this house of God alone. Now remember, the way these things were done was that this wasn't just to be read silently, this was read out loud. And these Jewish leaders had been waiting. Then they had continued to work, but they were waiting for the response. And you know, the governor says, okay, we gotta get together, got the response. And, there's, and he starts, you know, they start, they start to read this, this letter. And when they heard those words, let the work on this house of God alone. Leave them alone. You got to know that, that they were like probably trying to keep it in, right? They wanted to like just shout at that moment. It's the words they wanted to hear. The most powerful ruler of the day said, leave them alone. Let them work. But the story gets better. They would have been good right then. They'd have been like, okay, great. Please leave, we're gonna start working. But the letter goes on. It says, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. 
The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. What? They not only got royal permission, he also funded the entire building. I don't know that they were expecting this. They were happy with the first part. And then he puts on top of this, give them everything they need. And he continues, not only for the building of the temple, he says, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, um, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, Let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. It's not just letting them build. He's also going to keep giving them everything they need for their sacrifices. Again, just blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace. But he's not done. He then says, also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. It's pretty intense, okay? Try not to picture all of those things because they're not pleasant. But what is he now saying? I'm not just giving my permission. I'm not just providing. I'm also protecting. They have the protection of the most powerful person on earth. Now, the Jewish leaders, they didn't necessarily think they needed Darius's protection because they believed they were doing what God said and they had the protection of God. But this makes their job a lot easier. Not having to fight, you know, the rulers of the day. And he says, may the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. And what's happening here is God is working through this secular leader who doesn't even know God is using him. Don't be mistaken by the language to think that Darius is a believer in God. He's not. We talked about this on Wednesday night. He believed, you know, he believed in Ahura Mazda, which was the god of uh, Zoroastrianism. And if he did believe in, you know, God, he wasn't really believing in, you know, Yahweh. He might have thought the Jewish people's Yahweh was actually his God, maybe. But there's a lot of reasons that Darius is doing what he's doing. And we don't have time to go into them all. And, and again, some of them could have been religious, But the other thing he's trying to do is he's trying to, he has kind of a precarious hold on on his reign because he's he's not one of Cyrus's kids. He's not in that line. 
And he's already done something where he's married one of Cyrus's his daughters. But now he gets to finish a job that Cyrus starts. They have all these reasons, right? All these reasons that, that Darius could have done it. That in his mind, this is what he was doing. This is what it, it felt like he was doing. But what was actually happening was God was using him. Let me just point out to you a huge difference between how God uses his people and how God uses everyone else. Darius is not being faithful. He's not a Christian. He's not a, a, a God-fearing Gentile. That's not who Darius is. Don't get in your minds that, that he somehow converted to Judaism. He doesn't. From what we know from historical records, and they are abundant, he, he's in some ways better than a lot, of, than a lot of, uh, of the kings and rulers, but he still operates the same way. But God uses him anyways even though he doesn't know he's being used. Well, what's the difference? How does God use us? How does he use those who are his people, his children? Well, I've already said it. He uses us through our faithfulness. You see, what happens when God's children disobey, when God's children go against the law, what God does is he disciplines, he punishes, he judges. And we've seen this just happen to the Jewish people just a few decades earlier when the Babylonians came to town. But he uses our faithfulness. These leaders are being faithful. They're being faithful even when they didn't know for sure that the world leaders were going to go along with them. They're being faithful. And that, that comes to us today, that, that same call to be faithful. Can, can God, does God work through our secular leaders? Sure he does. But he doesn't do it because they're faithful. Unless they happen to be believers. He does it because he's God. And he's using them. When we think about like evaluating leaders, sometimes we, th we wanna evaluate our presidents and others like on how Christian they are. But I think sometimes we can't really evaluate until we look back. And when we look back, you know, we can look back and we can say like, you know, what have our leaders done? Whether they knew they were doing it or not, what have they done, or what are they, had they planned to do to help or hinder the cause of Christ, even though they didn't know they were doing it? That's the challenge. Sometimes we unwittingly vote for the person we think is more Christian who ends up doing things in office that 
that hinder the cause of Christ. There's been, there's been legislation proposed for at least, you know, I think at least like six to eight years and maybe longer that, that says that if it were to pass, that it could be used to, to make us, not as a church, but as an employer, as an employer, not be able to hire people according to what we believe the Bible teaches. But to instead to hold to some, some higher non-discrimination policy that's above scripture, that would then be above us. Do, do we care about that? Because I know people who, who are good people who would support that. It's just one of many examples for us to think about. Because we are called, we are called to be involved in our, in our government. We as Americans, we say that, that it is you know, by the people, which means we have to be involved. But we have to be involved as being faithful. We need to vote in a faithful way. We need to participate out of faithfulness. And again, God is gonna use the leaders however he uses them. But our participation needs to be an expression of our faithfulness. Well, this will, let me move through this kind of quickly here. It says in verse 13 that the word sent by Darius the king, the Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozenai, and their associates did with all diligence what King Darius had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Paraphrase, they finished the temple and they had a big barbecue. Um, you, do need, you do understand that when they sacrificed the animals, unless it was the special sacrifice of what was called the Holocaust, they ate the, 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 what they sacrificed. So what happens? Well, God works through his faithful followers who complete the work he set before them. They continue to work. It's, it, you know, this was a great moment they had permission, they had resources, but they still had to do the work. And again, it's this reminder that God works through us. We see this in Philippians 1.6, 
When we went over Philippians, we went into this a little bit more in depth, but it's this idea that, that you know, Paul is praying. He says, he who began a good work in you, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We some, see something similar in Ephesians 2, verse 10, where Paul's been writing to a, another church, and, and he's talking about that, you know, you are his workmanship, and you've been, you've been prepared for good works, to do these good works that were prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Again, this idea, God works through you. And by the way, we miss the miracle. We're always looking for the miracle like, like you know, the letter shows up and then, you know, then Darius said, the temple shall be built and poof, a temple was built. That's what we look for and we don't see that. We're like, we're kind of disappointed. But what kind of miracle is this? God uses an unbelieving king caught up in a very difficult time in, in, in you know, his reign. He uses a people who have recently returned after being displaced. Many of them had never been to Jerusalem before. And they had just gotten over an 18 year break in work. With all of that going on, God accomplishes his purpose through those people. That to me is a far more impressive miracle. If whatever God was trying to do here, he could just snap his fingers and it all happened. Be a great miracle. I think it's a greater miracle that he would do that through me and you. Because we're gonna mess it up. We're gonna make it harder. We're gonna keep bringing junk into situations that needs to be cleaned and processed. We're gonna have our doubts. We're gonna, you know, it, it's gonna be our struggle. We're gonna have our conflicts. We're gonna have our personal issues. All that's gonna happen. And when God accomplishes what he accomplishes, we realize it's a miracle he could use knuckleheads like us to make something beautiful. That's what he does. It's pretty amazing. I'm gonna skip ahead here and just get to this last point because what they do is they, they then, um, they, they, they observe the Passover and it's important because this Passover connects them to the faithfulness of the past, but it also points to the future, that they are going to continue to be faithful in the future, and this is how we see God works. God doesn't just work through the faithful today, he continues to work through people who faithfully keep his word, faithfully live for him, faithfully follow him in whatever situations that lie ahead. And this, this Passover feast, is so important in that. You know, some people get upset with, you know, rituals and, you know, observances like this, and it's like, you know, and they're not bad. Rituals aren't bad. Rituals are bad when they become empty, when they take the place of true worship. But this Passover symbolizes this new faithfulness. 
But make no mistake, it won't be easy. Jesus tells us it won't be easy. In Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 28, he reminds the, the people that are following him, these great crowds are following him, and he reminds them, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's not gonna be easy. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus also speaks about how, you know, what's gonna happen when, when, when what he's talking about really takes hold in, in our lives. That it's gonna set, you know, brother against brother, parent against child. It's already happening. The election years remind us that family members, neighbors, even other church members can actively work against what the Bible teaches. They can express their opinions on, on social media or just in conversations, vote for politicians that, that support things that are go against what the Bible teaches, even campaign and advocate for causes. We see it, it pops up every election cycle. If you live for Christ, it's, it's not an easy thing and part of what makes it difficult is that the culture is going in a different direction. We don't have an excuse though. Doesn't matter how good or how bad it is. Doesn't matter how good or bad we have it. God wants us to be faithful in all situations. We don't have the excuse of saying, well, God will work through my mess. No. God wants to work through our faithfulness. And just the last point is this, that your faithfulness doesn't mean you get to see the finish line. When I coach, you know, I coach a, track, you know, and there's, there's different legs in a relay race. And it doesn't matter if the first leg finishes first or the second leg finishes first. Their, the race isn't over. Their race is over. They did their part, but they handed it to the next generation, the next group. That's our our task. Our task isn't that we get to see the finish line, that we're the last leg. We're to be faithful. We're to run the race he set before us, even if it's just one leg of the journey. Let's pray.